Hello friends, I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines Commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Port the T-Shirt Podcast. Sam, how are you, brother? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Yes, I have to say, I was very excited when I, I, I somebody said, Chris, you want to get this guy on your podcast? Um, thank you to that person on Twitter. Sorry, your name escapes me. Um, and I took a look, and it was an article, I think it was a, in, done in one of the local papers. And um, when it comes to anything Antarctica, I'm... I'm all ears, um, having expeditioned to the continent myself for a scuba diving trip um, and just getting sucked into just the amazing everything about the place, the, the geography, the history, the history of exploration, Shackleton's story, et cetera, et cetera. So when I saw yours, the first thing that... that um, piqued my interest as it said the first crossing of antarctica um and i was a bit bamboozled i'm not sure where which paper that was then because i'm not claiming to be the first uh crossing i'm intrigued about that um hmm. um but no so in terms of ski crossing oh so that's uh, that's just a, a, a yeah a neat, no, I've, yeah, I've just yeah, yeah my website then to make sure i can claim something no so it's it's the furthest uh ski crossing so so the way um, we're just chatting about it before we started recording is there's a lot of nuance around the language in Antarctica because of Lou Rudd and Conlo Brady's um, crossing. They they brought in a classification system called um, Polar Expedition Classification System. So they do North South Pole and uh, Greenland, Svalbard and sort of all the waters around it. Um, if you're in the polar regions, you go through this organization to to get your expedition classified, especially if you're looking for world records and things like that. So so what mine is officially titled as is the um, furthest, so in terms of distance, um, ski unsupported solo crossing of Antarctica. So like I said, Lou Rudd and uh, Conor Brady did a ski crossing a few years ago. Um, theirs was about 14, 50 kilometers. Mine's gonna be around about 2000. And then Rand finds clearly using tractors. That's not a ski crossing. Um, so. Uh, that's you know the different different category and the same with people at Borg Island who has crossed the Antarctica uh, but using a kite um, as assistance um, or, or supported so so I am just skiing um, with no resupply or anything like that so um, yeah just just skiing across on my Todd again people have done it in pairs and teams um, but not not a soloist yeah so this will be the first recognized officially recognized crossing uh, should you succeed According, yeah, the, yeah, according to the new classification system, so Lou yeah. and Collins' route now wouldn't be classified as unsupported because they use the the spot road. Um, so that's the spot road is a is an ice blasted road and graded, so it gets rid of all the lumps and bumps and has markers every few hundred meters for, to allow resupply in winter to to the uh, research station on the South Pole from um, one of the other research stations on the coast. Um, so nowadays that wouldn't be counted as an unsupported expedition um, and they're not going to, you know, they've got grandfather rights, they're not going to go back in time and declassify it because there weren't any um, conditions for them to to go and work off initially. So it, it wouldn't be fair to them to to 
retrospectively declassify anything they did. Yes, yes. Sorry, I'm just going to say it again. I'm not trying to be political here. I'm no, just no, it's absolutely to, fine. Just, no, it's... Just, just, I don't care about all the minutiae of that sort, sort of stuff. Get in hot water of the language. And I've had a few people yeah. going, oh, you can't use that word because unassisted means like gravity. And it's like, okay, I get gravity. And all of this wind might assist you. It's like, okay, fine. But yeah. wind can also unassist you. And gravity, you have to go uphill to then go downhill, don't you? So it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. But there's you have to play the game, I suppose. And this is, this is part of it. It was um, ITV dot com i believe that uh, you were quoted in and the headline if, um j- just for your interest former royal marine from torbay to attempt world's first solo crossing of the antarctic that was why i was confused uh, that's <laughs> so, probably because i should have hung around for the entire uh, interview rather than uh, squeezing in their little section beforehand and then um not, not going off the press brief clearly but yeah interesting yes I it now so just right off the bat are you familiar with the flat earth theory? Oh, yeah. No, since Daily Mail put an article out, I have not been inundated, but I have been um, questioned by a few people <laughs> and added by quite a few flat earthers. Because, you know, the, for people listening that wonder where, where I'm going with this, the notion is that it, it that Antarctica is an ice wall that fringes fringes this flat plane. And I say, no, it's not an ice wall. It, it's a continent. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated from an explorer's point of view. How do you counter fact that with what you're about to do, certain group would say you're going to fall off the side of the planet? I suppose that the, the argument would be that I'm a government agent to make the, the people believe that the earth is flat, but I'm, I'm definitely not. And I think um, individuals that think that uh, the governments around the world and the military have that level of capability seriously overestimate the the ability of of these organizations have just left the marines after 13 years is um yeah the organization's not not that cohesive to be able to uphold a lie that big but um it's interesting i never really thought about it until a few weeks ago when when someone questioned me and started quoting a few facts that were nearly 300 years old so um I suppose it's just using science that, that fits their narrative and, you know, there's a lot of science out there. And, um, read read around the subject and don't just go down the rabbit hole that you're on and maybe read some counter arguments to understand what the other side is saying. Um, you know, I've read a few things and, and to me, that I've, I find quite a few flaws in, in the proof that they're using in terms of using Captain Cook from the late 1700s as, as proof and a bloke who sailed to Antarctica in the early 1900s. I mean, it's it's coming up. 100 if not 300 years old some of this evidence they're using and actually there's um a hell of a lot of evidence out there and the fact that i'm about to go there to to show that it's it's not a conspiracy to keep people off um i mean you can literally go to the fcdo in the uk if you're from the uk to get a permit to to go down there or speak to any of the companies private companies as well that run expeditions down there um whether that's to the south pole or or walking small areas around it or or sailing down there or scuba diving or whatever you want to do it's a vast continent sam isn't it it it's the the notion that you'd see another person down there and unless you were near a, a research station is a, is probably a bit far fetched yeah, it's as big as mainland europe and the uk combined including a lot of the seas um bigger than australia you know, the continental uh, United States fits inside of it. I mean, it's a huge place with about 30,000 people there in the summer. So, um, yeah, like I said, the likelihood of you bumping into mm. someone, let alone a, a task force to stop you from, from landing there is 
is minimal. There might be some penguins there, um, but then that's another conspiracy theory, isn't it? Uh, mo- moving yeah, on, move on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, do you want to just give us a, a very brief rundown? Some of your time, ta- your your time in the core. What what you got up to? What what rank? Yeah, you, so you were? so I joined the young officers batch in 2010. Um, did 15 months down at Limpston, which is where you do all the commando training. Um, passed out, did my troop commander. Then in 2013, did sort of the latter end of Herrick. What was that? 17 and most of Herrick 18 um, sort of overlapped. Um, I was attached to the BRF uh, doing the helicopter landing site. So actually sort of the best of both worlds. I got a bit of uh, bastion life. So, you know, the joys of a coffee shop, but then um, out patrolling pretty much every other day um, doing helicopter landings and then uh, taking off at the end of the day or uh, end of two days. Um, really enjoyable tour. Um, really busy tour. Came back, continued, uh, spent my first winter in Norway and then my second winter in Norway, which is where this sort of generated from. Um, joined uh, 2-9 Commando not too long after that. Uh, trained to control fast air. So it's called JTACing now, but it used to be called FAC or, or FACing mm-hmm. um, and deployed to um iraq uh as a jtac um against isis which was a really interesting tour um and then came back from that what else have i done i've been all over the shop really i've I've not really stayed in one place nice jack of all trades um which has been really good and a couple of staff jobs and now, now i'm here so um staff jobs didn't didn't suit me and my outdoorsy nature and wanted to do something physical and uh, mental rather than purely cognitive behind a desk it's not my uh not my idea of a good time so um talking to someone that's also arctic warfare trained um what how much of an advancement from say the skills that somebody like myself would have or yourself from from the core is it to to be considering crossing a con- continent especially one known for is it huge crevasses and and the like uh not well it depends where you go obviously it's going to be huge crevasses depending on your route but um the route I've got as a soloist, I've I've spoken to the team, help you advise with the route, and I've tried to stay away from crevasses. Not much you can do as a soloist to if you do go down one. There's not much you can do to then get back out. So, um, in terms of training, it's it's I suppose Limston sets you up well. In general, it gives you a, you know applied resilience is something that I'm quite keen to push towards people. You can talk about resilience and read books about resilience and have skills for resilience, but actually until you put yourself in a situation which is usually outside your comfort zone, you can't then gain the experience of resilience. So um, CTC really pushes you pretty much every day to that level. Um, so that provides a good level. It just gives you a good set of and base of routines and knowledge that you get up in the morning, you do a certain task, and then you get on with your day, and then you finish, and then you go to bed and sleep. And that's, you know, just hard bootneck life um and in terms of the norway stuff the skiing technique is is a little bit different because you don't have a whopping great big burger on going through trees and falling over every 15 minutes and i think the biggest issue i had initially was translating the military techniques and procedures into um expedition procedures so things like you know you don't i don't now put my my stove away every night because i'm not going to get bumped in the middle of the night or i don't have to pack my tent away fully i can be efficient with it by just folding a couple of the poles over rolling it up and then shoving it in a ski bag and having it on top of my pole it's it's things like that where it's not laziness it's just efficiencies in a different manner um but things like routines of you know i'll ski for 90 minutes and then have a break to have something to eat and something to drink is that's really drilled into you and there's definitely a difference between 
adventurers who do this sort of stuff who are self-taught from a civilian background and the adventurers who've got even a slight military background is um they they understand sort of going that extra mile and being lazy isn't helpful so you know you need to eat as soon as you get in don't don't just sit down take your boots off and get in your sleeping bag because you're you're robbing peter to pay paul because you're not going to you know feel as good the next day and you just feel worse and worse so it gives you a great grounding um but it's quite a bit of um differences between between the military world of teaching and the and the, the expedition world and what what was your kind of right i'm going to do this moment and and how, why did you even decide to to um on antarctica so i was i when covid was um bubbling away in the background i, I left for an exercise in brunei um in late january when 2020 when covid was what 10th on the news and nothing nothing was really known about it disappeared off no no phone signal no wi-fi or anything so we we missed the whole build-up and then we got told we got pulled off the exercise out the jungle um got told right brunei shutting its borders tomorrow we're flying back in the morning um and we got back on a saturday uk went to lockdown on, on the monday so i'd been from a really 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 busy quite austere environment to then sitting on my sofa watching netflix pretty much all day and then going out with the dog for my hour hours exercise so after about two weeks of that my mind was still racing so i needed something to to plan i'd always really only had professional goals being ex-military you know what it's like you got the next course coming up or the next deployment coming up so that's your goal for and that's your focus for for it so i wanted something for me so i'm not a runner i'm not a climber i'm not a particularly good kayaker or anything like that so i was looking around and then linking back to norway that's where the idea came from is i'll do something cold weather so um antarctica sort of piqued my interest a little bit more um than than the northern hemisphere having been to norway quite a few times so that that's where the idea came from and then went back to work and then it was the november lockdown of 2020 that was like okay this idea is going to turn into a project um and being longer term it's been really good in terms of engaging me mentally and physically so the planning of it you know i've got spreadsheets for days on my on my laptop that you know, planning weights, planning food, planning menus, um, through to the actual physical sort of endeavour of training for this. It's it's been a nice balance of everything. I've genuinely really enjoyed it, even though it's been like a second full time job in in the evenings after I finish work. Have you been down there before? No, I've never been uh, down to Antarctica, so it'd be be first time. So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, to be honest, it's, it should be really good. Again, only having done Norway and Sweden, it's not a million miles apart, but it's it's significantly different um from the scandex yeah it's i've i've not been to the interior obviously but certainly when you visit the the peninsula it's utterly stunning yeah just just it's not i had it in my mind i don't know i i, I don't even know what i thought it was i wasn't even sort of it's going to sound weird i didn't know then what i know now i hadn't read the books on shackleton for example and scott and amundsen and this kind of stuff and and i wasn't yeah i wasn't i can't say like i'm massively into wildlife although you know we got to appreciate that sort of thing but once you get down there and you see it it's just like oh my gosh now i know you know um now 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 i know why i'm here it's utterly stunning uh, utterly stunning so you see um you know you see icebergs the size of like counties like countries aren't they yeah <laughs> yeah just flo floating by and and this the the wild like i say the wildlife and the 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 sense of the 
explorers that have gone before you and the there's expedition huts down there you can go in that are just like they were when they were left i don't know probably 80 years ago or something mm. but uh yes um so how much money does a trip like this cost and and how have you raised it so it depends on what you're trying to do so it's all down to um routes you're taking and um sort of team size and things like that and again like the the flipping pound drops um significantly from from when i had the money raised to when i finally got the invoice so so that that, that costs a uh an eye-watering amount more so so my trip's around about two hundred thousand dollars um which which is pretty pricey but that's because i'm so remote in terms of where my pickup point is so um when you get picked up by the plane if i could fill the plane it would still cost the same amount for the for the flight it's just for me no one else is coming with me so i'm not able to and then um in terms of financing quite a lot's been sponsorship um and then quite a lot's been sort of personal debt and personal financing so saving for for a few years as well as taking a few loans as well so um you know a lot of speaking to a few people and then reading around a few other expeditions is people who seem to come across the finance quite easily maybe don't have the best results i think it's it's been quite useful that it's been probably the hardest part of of the whole thing is trying to raise the cash to to get this through um obviously we live in difficult financial times anyway um and it's probably only going to get worse so it's been difficult to get people to commit um without having a an expedition behind me first whereas a lot of the other people who who seemingly get the money quite easily is uh down to them either having like a bit of a background in the expeditioning world was obviously more my backgrounds through military hardship which some people don't necessarily understand as a as a, as a you know a reasonable background in comparison to some civil led um expeditions that people have done yes here here so 2000 miles what kilometers sorry yeah uh, sorry kilometers hopefully it's not miles <laughs> it's not I've definitely got my master off <laughs> it might be if you if you what do they say about an officer with a compass no don't be like that <laughs> um Oh, what was I going to say? Yes. So, what, uh, Sam? What training have you done? So, um, in terms of or, or cold prep, prep preparation, prep, I suppose. Better, yeah. So, so, like I said, the, the, I was a bit. You get a few people who go from zero to hero in about five years. And I suppose my initial adventure background started when I was a teenager. I, I live in Devon, so not too far from from Dartmoor. So, I was out there probably every other weekend, camping and things like that. So, weirdly, that. You know, I, I learned to read a compass in my teens and learned how to put up a tent in my teens and learned how to cook rations in my teens. So that sort of gave me a head start when I joined the Corps, for example. And then the Royal Marines gave me another head start in terms of the polar world, giving me six months in Norway before I even thought of doing something like this. So um, understand the environment gave me a, a really good sort of bumper compared to some of the other people who, who start fresh. So so in terms of training, like I said, the first the first cold weather winter i did training for this specifically i looked to make sure i could do the distances i require so i was doing between 25 and 30k a day for three and a bit weeks um to make sure i was physically capable of doing it sort of working things out as i went along and i was using pluses kits pluses planks pluses boots they're, they're the newer skis so they're not the old wooden ones there they were the um newer military ones um using big heavy tents and you you know if you can train in the dark when it's colder in your tent at night it surely makes it easier when you go down to Antarctica and it's warmer in your tent because it's 24 hour daylight. So your tent warms up quite nicely. Um, and then this winter I sort of left the fizz side, didn't focus on 
on distance and really focused on getting techniques and routines together so i really focus on skiing technique you look at some of the guys who have done some of the records down there and magically they're always from northern canada or the nordics where they're you know they're born with skis on so there's a reason for that it's because their technique's really good so i focus on getting my technique um pinned down as well as things like routines of putting the tent up so i probably in the space of a week and a half put my tent up about 50 60 times every time i stopped i'd get a tent out and have a go at putting it up in a different way and then once i worked out a way i'd then fiddle with that way and you know finesse it to, to a point i get really comfortable with it so i could probably get my tent up in less than five minutes now even in bad weather just to you know saves you 10 minutes saves you getting cold saves you using extra calories saves the grumpiness saves you losing pegs um make sure i can do it and just repetition over that and even things like cooking is working out the the perfect amount of snow to melt down into water to then not use so much fuel later on so instead of filling the as you know at home when you put the kettle on you don't fill it full to make one cup of tea you you put enough in for a cup of water so you, it's, it's fiddling with things like that and working out stoves and just make sure i was as efficient as possible so that's that's all the technical side and the cold weather side and then physically um it's been sort of pushing the distances and times in terms of training and make sure that i'm as physically fit as possible i mean i'm relatively young compared to a lot of people who go down there to do these sort of things i'm I'm 34 but you look at people like lou who's in his mid-40s when he did this and um age is a factor but not a huge one it's that sort of mental knowledge as well so having a mix of the two hopefully will work really well for me in my favor mm. um so that's been the sort of main physical preparation that i've been doing Someone, uh, an ex-Bootnik actually, um, from a company called Resilience Development Company approached me about doing some resilience training. And I, initially I was like, nah, come on, mate. I'll, you know as you know as much as anyone. I've, I've been in the core for 13 years. I don't need resilience training. And actually, the skills are really good. They're, they're you know, they, they fit pretty much any circumstance and they deliver them to, to corporates and things like that. And actually, they're really small individual skills that help you in the long run. So one of the skills that always sticks in my mind is is dropping the peanut. So... What they mean by that is if you make a small mistake, people generally ruminate over that mistake and, you know, builds up, builds up, builds up, destroys your morale and makes you lose focus. Whereas they're like, if you lose a peg or you um, spill your dinner down yourself, you can't help it. It's happened. It's not going to affect you in the long run. So just drop it and leave it behind, park it there. And actually, that's something that I think everyone ends up not really doing is they they let let it fester in their mind and distracts them from what they're actually aiming to achieve or what they've got going on. Yes, it's a bit like mindfulness, isn't it? Live in the present, and uh, the 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 past no longer exists, no matter how mm. much we we sometimes think it does. And what um, what is the weight of the polk? So, in terms of the biggest thing I've got in my polk, weight wise, is food. It's just under one point five kilos a day. So, seventy five to eighty days, I think it's about one hundred and ten kilos all up. And then with equipment, fuel, and then the polka itself, it's all in. I think my magic number is 165 kilos. I'm just trying to get it to that to start with. Um, so what's that? 25, 26 stone. Um, it's a hefty weight, but again, it's it's nice to know that after 10 days, I'll be 15 kilos lighter, um, which would be good. So <laughs> it, it goes down every day, which is a nice little morale booster as I mm. eat all my dinner, make sure I finish my finish my tea each night. You, Sam, if I don't mind me saying so, you, um, you're not carrying, you're not carrying a few pounds, are you? Is, 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 is that going to be an issue? Cause I, I saw photos of, um, 
of Lou when he got back and he was sort of skeletal. Yeah, so it's it's a weird one. I'm carrying uh went up to Leeds Beckett University about two months ago and had a DEXA scan. So they work out your sort of all sorts of bodily measurements and that's from body fat through to bone density via muscle mass and stuff. So two months ago I was about twenty three percent body fat. Um so I've probably put on two or three kilos since then, um, been overeating to try and get it down. So there's a fine line, I suppose, of carrying extra body weight to be fat enough to have extra calories on board and to have that extra insulation, but also not overeating so you lose fitness and you you end up sort of carrying too much weight for the sake of it. So um, the other one I've, I've tried to do is I actually work for a, uh, one of the, nu- the nutrition company that, that started sponsoring me and one of the first sponsors of Resilient Nutrition. I actually work for them now. So, so we've des- devised a menu that means that I should get roughly the right amount of calories in per day whereas i know a lot of people in the past that's why my food passes are so heavy is a lot of people in the past have limited what they take down with them based on the weight rather than the calories and for me that doesn't really make sense so if you're if you've got a 70 day expedition and you know you're going to burn 7,000 calories like i do what's the point of taking 6,000 calories because it weighs less like you're not going to make it to the end because you're not going to have enough energy or you're going to be absolutely knackered um so i know people like I'm sure Ben won't mind me saying is he he basically ran out of food on two of his expeditions because he didn't take enough because he's trying to save weight. So if they if the company that are looking after me logistically give me 81 days, guess what? I'm taking 81 days worth of food. I'm not going to risk it for the sake of saving what would that be. Let's say 10 10 kilos worth of weight. I might as well take up food and actually finish it properly rather than risk it to save a bit of weight and be a bit lighter. There's no point in my eyes. I'd rather be slower, take the full 81 than try and go quicker but not finish it because I don't have enough food. Yes, got you, got you. And what uh, what is the bulk of your rations, or, or can you just give an an idea of what what somebody eats on an expedition like this? Yes, yeah, so it's uh, I think it's on the website and on my social media. So it's mainly nut butter. A lot of it is is quite high calorie nut butter. Um, so not classic dry roasted peanuts. It's it's almonds and cashews mixed in with cocoa and you know added protein things like that so so in, in the morning i've got um quite a high protein porridge which i just mix a little bit of water in and then with that there's a one of the products called a emergency survival ration um which is about 1600 calories in a big pack um which is nut butter and cocoa and you, i've just mix it in because the, th- the thing i found with big eating is the volume whereas this because it's nut butter it's not a huge amount of volume but it makes my breakfast like a thousand calories it sort of doubles the calories of it Mm. Um, that, that's going to be my breakfast and then I've got uh, some, carb- some carbohydrate dra- drinks in, in a flask so that's another 500 calories um, a long gone are the days of, of pus's screech you know it's not pure sugar this is actually useful useful calories so mm. I'm not drinking limers going around it's uh, nutritionally beneficial limers we'll leave it at that and then throughout the day I've got loads of different snacks so I found a, um, a type of cheese that is hard baked um, so it takes all the moisture out of it, reduces the weight, but actually 100 grams is about 550 calories. So I'm going to eat 100 grams of dried cheese every day, uh, salami, more nut butters. Um, and then when I finish in the evening, I've got um, a big uh, dehydrated main meal. Um, think like a, if you've not eaten them before, like a like a healthier pot noodle. Um, so that's about 1500 calories. And all in all, it's just over 7,000 calories a day um, mixed in in 1.5 kilos, which is... As far as I can see, the lightest anyone's been able to get that amount of calories 
in them without just drinking olive oil, which was the sort of the old school way to get the calories in. What about uh, this is a question, I, a personal question I'd want to know. Do you drink? When we're in Norway, it was always wet stock, wasn't it? You know, tea, coffee. And when I look back, it's no wonder we were dehydrated dehydrated all the <laughs> all the time and i wonder what the situation is down there so so like i said i'm having a carbohydrate drink in one of, i'm taking two flasks so one one will be filled with hot carbohydrate drink and then the other one will just be hot water so i can either make another one later on or water it down or um the idea being that one being plain water means when i get in in the evenings i can start the the kettle off with some water in it rather than going straight from snow because it just takes longer. Mm. Um, and then I've, I'm taking one kilo of, bear in mind I've been trying to shave grams off everything, so cutting labels off clothes and um, you know shed, shedding bits and bobs and tailoring loads of items of equipment. I'm taking a kilo of coffee down with me, fresh coffee down with me, and my AeroPress to have one one every morning is a little morning treat as I get ready for the day. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to be drinking pure tea and coffee. <laughs> yes. Enough imagine my teeth afterwards yeah um yeah so i'm just taking one coffee as a sort of small luxury and in terms of your kit is there anything sort of gucci that we we should know about are there any in, innovations i've always thought i chat i chat with baz gray about this that could there not be some way of melting the water before you get to your rv some sort of dynamo I did you know. look at this. So I spoke to a guy up in Nottingham who, who designed a polk that was like an all-encased polk um, with wheels on. So you can you can take the wheels off. So when it's really deep snow, you take the wheels off. And then when it's good hard-packed snow, you can put the wheels on. It means you can sort of drag it along a bit easier. Um, and he talked about dynamos and ways to use solar panel to heat a, like a water bowser like you get in the back mm -hmm. of BVs, a sort of permanent. And I think it was one of those that the amount of solar output you'd need to do that just wouldn't be plausible um and then dynamos again to melt water beforehand i think the friction it would create would again it would just slow you down it'd be quite difficult to do um i have looked at different ways and it's difficult um but i think there's innovation in some ways but actually it's probably reached a peak and you know there's only so much you can do until you know someone invents a, a pole that floats or hovers or something but um but in terms of what I've done, I've tried to, a lot of people use other people's kit lists for these sort of things. So I've tried to steer away from doing that by using different brands. So a lot of people use Hilleberg tents. Nothing wrong with Hilleberg tents. They're great. So I've deliberately tried to use a different brand of tent. Um, so I'm using a Hellsport. Um, same with clothing. I'm using Yotner clothing. They've been kind enough to give me loads of clothing, whereas a lot of people just go with mountain equipment because what everyone else uses. And actually, one of the big things with it is, as with a pair of jeans, not all clothing brands fit you personally so you know you need to try things out before you before you even start so 75 days on your tod with a load of clothing that doesn't fit you isn't great so why, why would you just borrow someone else's kit list and go off that um so you need to tailor it to yourself i haven't gone people edit stoves and things but i mean they're they're pretty they're pretty well made anyway um and the time and effort with a full-time job and a young family to start fiddling around to try and make my stove that extra bit efficient is, is isn't really worth my time unfortunately I've, I've had to pick and choose certain things and um like i said i haven't done anything hugely innovative i think the, probably the main thing is the ration pack mm. um which should be the 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 biggest thing and i suppose that's the 
one thing people forget about when they're doing this sort of stuff. They're all about innovating kit and innovating things to make um, kit better. But actually, they forget about the human body. Like without you, you don't power that kit. So when you forget about the human body, it sort of negates all the all the gains you've made by adding something to your tent or removing something from your skis. It you know doesn't really make sense. What are your um, luxury items? So I am, like I said, my kilo of coffee. That's that's the main one. Um, and then because I'm out there for Christmas. My wife doesn't like uh, Christmas pudding, so I'm taking a small individual Christmas pudding for Christmas Day. Um, and then, like, I'm not. I was thinking about this. I've I've gone mildly military, so I've made ten different meal packs per for the whole thing. So I should only have one. So seven seven versions. So uh, ten different versions of my meal. So I should only have them each seven times. So you know, on a ten day rotating menu. I mean, if you've been on holiday for more. Than, a week you realize they just rotate the meals around and really complain so i wasn't going to take huge amounts of of luxuries with me um i think i'm gonna have one duff per week and i've got a one non-porridge breakfast per week as well as a bit of a treat um so what i am going to take with me is a few extra bits and bobs to to auction off afterwards to raise some money for for the for the charity i'm supporting rock to recovery so um i've got them here actually as a little ski lego man that I'm going to take out with me. So I don't know whether this counts as no longer being solo if he's out with me, my little Lego man. Um, so, so, I... so, someone's, someone will argue that. Believe, yeah, believe, sure. believe me. <laughs> believe me. Um, you'll, you'll end up in whatever the Antarctic Water Mitties Club is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And then, um, well, so I'm taking a few things down to use that weight as things I can then sell off afterwards. I'd rather, you know, it's not a huge amount of weight. I've limited it to a few hundred grams, but you know, if if I can sell some stuff off and make a few hundred quid for for the charity, then it means that at least it's you know worthwhile instead of me taking random luxuries I'm not going to eat or just go call a pack of fruit pastels or whatever. You could um, sell off some genuine, authentic Antarctic ice that that you filled up from the tap in Torbay. No, I fill it up at Heathrow on a land. Yeah, <laughs> here it is. Yes, you mentioned Rock to Recovery. Very, they, they do. Um, very solid work don't they with veterans who are who are overcoming overcoming challenges yeah veterans serving um personnel and blue light service as well um the main thing so for me i think probably about six months after i started planning this i realized it was my way of dealing with lockdowns i needed a goal um you know and it, it was relatively simple for me at the time to, to do so i didn't have a family and loads of other commitments whereas what work to recovery do is that they're proactive and coach people to deal with situations rather than wait until they reach a crisis point and then need intervention from calm or from Samaritans, people like that. So, so for me, this is a proactive way of, of dealing with lockdown. And I thought supporting a, a charity that do proactive methods of helping other people would, would be better than supporting a mental health charity that's post um, post crisis. Yes. Good effort. I did a quadruple Ironman once. I think I did that for rock to recovery. Um, <laughs> Yes, very, very uh, val valuable work. We'll put a friends at home. We'll put a link below for the charity, if or or for uh, well, we'll put all Sam's links below. So if you want to get in and support, that would be brilliant. Um, w w communications because now you can use your mobile in a sat case, if I understand correctly. Yeah, pretty much. So if I wanted to. And I'm pretty sure this will probably be the way it, it goes in the next 10 years is Starlink are now worldwide. So as an Elon Musk's mega network of Wi-Fi, so I could in theory have broadband speed level. It would be 15 kilos of my time and a lot of solar power. 
to generate it, but um, it's the reason I'm not using it. But then in terms of communications, I'm taking the old school sat phones anyway, because I need those for safety. And then um, ex-Bootneck, um, Justin is sponsoring me for, for the communications side. Um, so he's given me like a, I don't know what you call it, like a small, tiny little router, slower than dial-up speed internet. And that's hugely weather dependent. So whether that's wind or a slight bit of cloud cover will, will depend whether I can use this. But um, it means that I can hopefully send back some very, very, very low resolution pictures to at least keep people updated. And then Garmin now have a messaging service. So through my GPS um, device, I can message an old school style 140 character message back. It takes about five minutes to send, takes about 20 minutes to receive, but it means I can send a all okay, please pass my regards on, um, happy birthday, mum, that sort of stuff. So it's it's not hugely different from probably what it was 10 years ago, but um, technology is getting a lot better. And like I said, in 10 years time, um, when we're essentially guiding people to to the pole and they're mega rich and they want to continue their office job, I'm pretty sure you'd probably be able to get broadband down there to watch Netflix in the evening and obviously Sherpas <laughs> putting up your tent and stuff. So um, yes, yeah, becoming a very small world, but I've tried to sort of keep it a bit more traditionalist from the past 20, 30 years. Yes, good, good stuff, Sam. And it, it, it's not a subject I really want to talk about, but but yeah, emergencies must be a a thing in your mind if you if if you did have to get out of there what how how would a how how would a plane come and pick you up so the the company that look after logistics also do the 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 medical side so they have a full-time doctor in their camp um called union glacier which is where i'll fly to first to then set up before i then fly to my start point and the you as in the the expeditioner speaks to them daily um that's mainly just a check-in going i'm fine this is my location and normally that's it. But then if I were to have a, like a chest infection or an, or anything like that is they have a doctor on standby. So I can go, look, I've got these meds in my, in my med bag. So I'm taking antibiotics and a few big pain relief um, things down with me. So just in case, um, but it means they can advise you on what you've got in your kit bag um, to then administer yourself. Um, if they don't hear from you, so if you miss two SCEDs, you, they come and find you. They, they give you a GPS device as well as my own and a spare. So, Hopefully that won't that won't happen. Um, but they'll they'll come to your last known location and come look for you. Um, again, that's hugely dependent on on weather and where you are. There's certain areas where the plane would have to land a bit away from me to then have a team come down and find me if that were the case. But you know, it's few and far between. And like I said, the only real threats there's no wildlife. I'm hopefully going to skedaddle around all the all the crevasses. So. It would probably either be my own stupidity or all the conditions randomly caught me out. So um, hopefully touch wood. Have I got any wood? Yeah, touch wood. Um, that <laughs> that won't be necessary yes, to exactly. initiate that, that process. Exactly. Well, Sam, that all that leaves me to say is, um, you know, go and smash it, which we have no doubt you will. No, cheers, Chris. I really, really appreciate coming on this morning thank you for the time it's been a really enjoyable chat actually yes well we'll have one when you get back and yeah, um also we'll we'll hook up for a coca-cola when uh when uh when you get back that would be great you're only about half an hour away from me so that'll be that'll be good yes yes brother stay on the line so i can thank you properly but for the purposes of the recording um yes uh very proud of you all oh, just as always, safety first, isn't it? You know, and bet better to come back and try again 
yeah. than, than to push your luck. But I'm sure that I'm sure that won't happen. You tell my mum that. Yes. <laughs> Friends at home, hope you've enjoyed this chat as much as I have. If you can like and subscribe, that would be great. And if you'd be kind enough to support our Patreon, it's $1.99 a month. And you get uh, in VIP invites to all of my dues for free. We've got a bushcraft weekend. Much love. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thank you.